This is the Puck Junk Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm Sal Barry and with me is Tim Parrish and Jim Howard. And today we're going to talk about the 2023 Hockey Hall of Fame induction class. We're also going to talk about some of the notable snubs players who should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame but are not. And we'll also talk about some of the trading cards of these people who were inducted into the Hall. Guys, Tim Jim, Jim Tim, how you doing? I'm only here to not be fined by the league. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm only here so I don't get fined. Only here. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's out of football, though. I don't think a hockey player has used that yet. Well, the league's not that 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 much of a jerks to them. So, no, I think they should make Brad Marchand do that. I could see Marchand being that guy sitting there saying, "You know what? I'm only here because the league's making me do it." And then you have that sour look on his face. Yeah, well, he's he's typically got an opinion about something, and he's willing mm-hmm. to share it. So for free, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. So anyway, uh, last week the Hockey Hall of Fame made it an announcement that it was inducting. It's class of 2023. Uh, so headlining that class, we have New York Rangers goaltending legend Henrik Lundqvist. I think we all agree he's the headliner here. If not, save your thoughts yep. until. I'm pretty sure he got in unanimously. So. Yeah, and then we got a couple of guys that had to wait a long time. Goaltender Tom Barrasso, goaltender Mike Vernon. So a trio of goaltenders in this class. And then forward Pierre Turgeon. And then we also have uh, in the, uh, well, they don't really call it the women's category, but a women player, Caroline Ouellette of Canada. And then for coaching, Ken Hitchcock, I guess he'd be in the builder category. And then Pierre Lacroix, who was the GM and president of the Nordiques and the Avalanche. So those are the inductees. Shall we start with the king, since he's the king? Might as well. They've been putting him on TV a lot of notice during the uh, the postseason, so I feel like they've been trying to drum up some some interest and remind people that he's still around before the, the Hall of Fame thing hit. So that was kind of what I noticed uh, watching a lot of the postseason games on TV. Well, he's I mean, part I... of the panel for TNT. Yes, so he gets. But they were putting up. The they were putting him like up at the forefront a lot. Oh, yeah, sure. I actually kind of like the insight that he gives. It's it's a lot, a lot more detailed when it comes from the goaltender side because you don't get a lot of that with most of these panels because nine times out of ten they're like goal scorer guys or forwards that they don't know anything about the crazy people that sit in the net and so having that perspective I think is pretty good. That's why I like that's why I like Kevin Weeks when he does stuff because he. He gives that extra perspective of, you know, how things work and the mindset of the goaltender and everything else. And I think Lundqvist brings that. Not to mention, I mean, he's dressed to the nines all the time. He makes everybody oh, else. He's, he's, he's absolute GQ. Completely. Yeah, he makes like, everybody yeah, else on that panel up, look like He wakes up in a three-piece suit. Yep. But he's also one of the least crazy goaltenders out there. Because, I mean, True. it's not like they're putting Brisgall off up there. That would be just sheer entertainment value. But yeah, I love want- Chris Galoff when he did the sideline reporting maybe five, six years ago. Oh yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, if you want it to be if you want it to be your last show on TV, that's who you got to bring on your panel. <laughs> go out with a bang. If you're so, going out, you might as well go out. So 
Henrik Lundqvist is in the Hockey Hall of Fame not because of his work as a TNT panelist, although, yeah, that does keep him in the public spotlight. He played 15 seasons for the Rangers, 887 games played, 871 games started. His record is 459 wins, 410 losses, and 96 overtime losses. He has a career GAA of 2.43, a career save percentage of 0.918, and uh, 64 shutouts. And then in the playoffs, he went 51 and 67, better goals allowed average of 2.30, save percentage of 921, so slightly better save percentage as well. And 10 shutouts, and he did make it to the Stanley Cup Finals with the Rangers. They lost in 2014 to the Kings. He won the Vezina Trophy in 2012, and then internationally, he won uh, the gold medal in the Olympics in 2006 and a silver medal in 2014. I mean, you know, all-star games, all-star teams, stuff like that. Over a 15-year career, he had a really impressive career. He's won the individual awards. You know, he's an all-time leader for the Rangers with wins and shutouts. The only blemish in an otherwise perfect career. Well, besides that time, he went crazy and pushed over the net to stop the play. (laughs) What was he supposed to do? The only other blemish is that he didn't win a Stanley Cup. And that's where you can't really fault the player. Because he pretty much did everything a goaltender should do. He dragged those Rangers as far as he could into the Stanley Cup playoffs. And at the end of the day, winning the Stanley Cup is a team requirement. Not You can't just have one person get them there. If he had managed to win them the Stanley Cup, I think his name should have been on the Stanley Cup and everybody else should have just gone home. <laughs> it would just have one name under the Rangers. Yes. Lundquist, and then it would just be like 39 just blank spots. Blanks. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're not wrong. He was the yeah. team. When you have to rely that much on your goaltender to spring you forward, to save you and dig you out of holes. He's the whole reason why they remained relevant, as I think, throughout most of that time. I mean, yeah, did they have good players? Of course. But any other goaltender back there, I, I don't think so. Honestly, yeah, him and Carey Price were like just in their heydays were like the faces of their teams, and they win or, or lost on their backs on those goaltenders, for sure. There was a span of four years where he played 70 or more games. So, I mean, they were really depending on him hard. I mean, I'm going to look at just 08, 09. Who is their backup? Oh, Steve Eliquette was the backup that year. And then uh, 9, 10. Oh, and then 9, 10, they rotated through Steve Eliquette, Matt Zaba, Alex Ald, and Chad Johnson. Some great names there. So, yeah, when you're Henrik Lundqvist and you're playing 70, 73 games a season, it really doesn't matter who the other goalie is on the team. Rangers depended on him so much. I mean, and, you know, you're same with, like, Carey Price. I mean, once they traded off uh, Yaroslav Halak and said, okay, Price is our number one and he's going to play a ton of games, can't really remember who the backup goalie is on that team. Whereas, like, other teams, you kind of know who the number one goalie is, who the number two goalie is, and a lot of times they're kind of interchangeable. You know, it's kind of like a, a neck-and-neck thing, you know, 40 games, 38 games sort of thing. 1A, 1B, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you were uh, reading off the stats, did you say 410 losses or 310? 
I probably got it wrong. Why? Is it 310? Yeah, it's 310. I Thank didn't know you. if you said 310 or 410. I thought I heard well, you say 410. But... I think I said 410 as well, and I probably typoed it because I was making oh. my notes last minute yeah, because right. I'm a big nerd who makes notes before he records a podcast. I didn't say a word. I said nothing. A couple other things I'll just throw out here about King Henrik. Only goalie in the NHL to record 30 wins each season for his first seven seasons. He was named to the first All-Star team in 2012, the second All-Star team in 2013. He played in the NHL All-Star game five times, 2009, 2011, 2012, 2018, 2019. I'm actually surprised it was only five times. I feel like every season in the 2010s, Lundqvist was in the All-Star game. There's only but so many goalies that are going to be right. in the All-Star game. So, right. I mean... There were other other ones that were exciting, you know, the hot new flavor. They got voted in, whatever. And I'm sure he didn't mind actually having a week off for once. Yeah, I mean, no. come on. Tristan Jari was an all-star a couple years ago. You know what? So. He's got a twin brother. He could have sent his twin brother in his place and nobody would have noticed. It's the oh, all-star yeah. game. Nobody's expecting you to stop everything. Joel Lundquist, yes, uh, mm. Henrik's brother, who played for the Dallas Stars. I have his champs rookie somewhere. Do you want to talk about, as long as we brought up rookie cards, you want to talk about uh, Lundquist's rookie cards? Go for it. Okay. He has rookie cards. He has hockey cards. He was in pretty much every set in 05-06 when he had that crazy double rookie class that had Sidney Crosby and Alex Ovechkin and, like, just practically, I don't say every good player from that era, but, like, you had Crosby, you had Ovechkin, Obviously, you had Lundquist, you had Duncan Keith, you had Brent Seabrook, you had Corey Perry, a lot of rookie cards of players who didn't really pan out either. But like pretty much anybody who made their debut at the end of 0304, because you had to lock out in 0405. So anybody 0304, and then you had guys who could have played in 0405 that were drafted and didn't. So then they made their debut in 0506, and then you had guys who were drafted in 05 who made their debut in 0506. So you just had like a ton of great players. So, of course, he's in all the sets. He's got a young gun. I know what was funny was that, like, I was going through my cards, and I was like, I found that I had, like, some low-end Lundquist rookies. Like, I had a couple of MVP rookies, and I looked them up, and they're, like, $5 cards. And I'm like, really? A Lundquist rookie is a $5 card? Okay, it's not not a pandemic anymore. The prices have dropped a little bit. Yeah, well, and I think people I think people have always slept on those lower end sets because they're not young guns. Right. So we've talked about this ad nauseum that people just ignore anything that's not a young gun. So when you go back and you look at someone like Hank with 0506, yeah, it's a double rookie class and there's a ton of stars and future Hall of Famers in that set. But the victory set, everybody ignores victory. Yeah, they're cheaper cards and they were all over the place. But you can get a victory Lundquist rookie for like three bucks. You can get his power play for like four bucks. His MVP is like five bucks. He has four or five different beehive ones with the various blue border, red border, yellow border. I don't think any of those are more than $10. Plus Parkhurst is like five, six bucks. You got the ultra. You got to get up to like the black diamond or the trilogy to finally get into like double digits when it comes to his cards. How flooded is the market with those cards too? I mean, it's, it's, you know, supply and demand. Well, and there were a lot and there weren't a lot unearthed for quite a while until all of a sudden those sets from that year became the biggest thing. And then all of a sudden 
all of these boxes and whatnot that people had been sitting on forever just suddenly entered the wild. So yeah. And when those flooded the market, it made it kind of cheaper for me to go buy them then. So right, because I mean, like, Cam Ward in that year too. I mm-hmm. forgot about Cam Ward. Just on a whim, if you jumped on to Com C right now and just looked up his victory rookie card, there's 27 of them available. That's just on Com C. And what's the low end on that? Like $2.85. Okay. So, I mean, they're pretty cheap. Um, so you can get quite a few of his low end, lower end rookie cards for a decent price. Obviously, you're going to pay more for the young guns or the higher end cards like the, you know, like the SPX, you know, rookie jersey cards or you get into like the ultimate and, of course, the young guns and the cup, uh, the cup and all that kind of stuff. But. You know, anything beyond that, they're very affordable. Again, I'm surprised because he's a goalie. And he plays for the Rangers. Those are two things that people collect. There are a lot of Rangers collectors, and there are a lot of goalie collectors. I'm surprised his cards are not worth more. But maybe they will be now that he's going into the Hall of Fame. Well, he'll get a little bit of bump from going to Hall of Fame, but, you know, he's been, I won't say he's been completely out of the spotlight for a little while, but, you know, this will definitely give him a little bit of a bump up. And then he'll go right back down to $2.10 a card again. So, what a fickle world we hockey collectors live in. I know. He won't, he won't bat a gorgeous eyelash yeah. at it and, and worry about it at all. We go crazy over the cards when it's some reason to go crazy. And then all of a sudden we're like, nah. We like it back the way it used to be. Let's put it all back. And we do it every single time. Run it back. Yep. You don't see that in the other sports. Once I have it, I don't care. Once I have the card that I want, I don't care if it's worth a buck or a thousand bucks. I have it. You know what I mean? And that's the funny thing is like when I look up the value of a card and I'll be like, oh my God, I didn't know it was that much. And people say, well, how did you know? And I'm like, because I bought that card 15 years ago and then I never had to look for another one. That's the completest. Once you have it, you're done. So, should we talk about Tommy B next? Tom right. Barrasso? Yeah. Still the goalie coach. Tom Barrasso. Crazy. I can't believe that three goalies in one year. That seems... I don't know if this is the first time that's... It's got to be the first time that's happened. Who was the best forward or defensive man who, who got snubbed? All because three goalies decided to glut the system. That's the exact thing that you have to consider because... First year players that are automatic, you know, the quote unquote automatic guys right there, they push other players to the back burner Mm -hmm, because they're going in automatically. Right. If we're only talking about the male players, there's only four male players that they're limited to. So if you have one automatic guy, you're down to three. And think about this. It's not representative across the board of what you see on a team, because if you're talking the six guys on the ice, every sixth choice should be a goaltender. Yeah, Based but off I mean, of you, that you think about how logic. many skaters there are versus how many goaltenders there are. Oh, right. And that's like why how, it's How many offset. kickers are in the, the, the football Hall of Fame as compared to everybody else? Well, did you say kickers? Yeah, and, and, and don't actually answer that. I'm just... <laughs> we can move it along. I was going to say, I think there's only like four. That's kind of what I mean is, you know, there's it's a pretty limited amount of, of players to go in because there's only so many of them... That exist at any point in time. And I think one of the four is George Blanda. So he's got like multiple positions. So Tom Barrasso broke on the scene in the 83-84 season. He was drafted by the Buffalo Sabres in the first round. He made the team as an 18-year-old rookie. 
And he had an incredible rookie season. He won the Calder Trophy as Rookie of the Year. And he won the Vezina Trophy as the league's best goaltender. So, I mean, not to be hyperbolic, I hate the one for the ages because that's such a cliche. But really, he had a rookie season for the ages. I mean, think, you're 18 going on 19. You played high school hockey. Now, all of a sudden, you're a starting goaltender for the Buffalo Sabres at 18. And the league says, yep. You're the best goalie this year. And then the league also says, oh, yeah, and you're also the best rookie this year. He had a crazy good first year of hockey. The next season, he won the Jennings Trophy for statistically best goaltending duo. Him and Bob Sove shared that award. Some of his uh, statistics, 777 games played. Hopefully, I got his record right here. 369 wins, 277 losses, 86 ties. Goals allowed average of 3.24. Now, remember, this was the 80s and the 90s. It was a wild time. Uh, and then a save percentage of 892. In the playoffs, he went 61 and 54, had a 3.01 goals allowed average and a 902 save percentage. But most importantly, I think he was the goaltender for the Pittsburgh Penguins when they won the Stanley Cups in 91 and 92. And Tim, I think you could talk more about Barrasso's play. As a penguin. I never saw him. Oh, okay. He was all right. I'm just kidding. It was a joke. Yeah, I mean, this guy, it was a totally different team when you had the penguins prior to him coming Mm -hmm. to the team versus what they were afterward. Okay, dispel the Smith for me really quick. Anybody could have been the penguins goaltender those two years and they would have won the cup. Uh, Anybody? Well... I don't know about anybody. I feel like sometimes like people say, like, oh, Barrasso gets too much credit because he had a team with Mario Lemieux and Yarmir Yager and Paul Coffey and, and Did he have steal any games in the postseason? Look, backstopping, arguably one of the most offensively talented teams in the history of the league, certainly doesn't hurt. But... If you look at, at least during that time frame, if you look at Barrasso's athleticism in that, his, I mean, his puck control skills were, they were top notch. They were one of the top in the league of most goaltenders at that time. And his agility out there was second to none. So it wasn't like he was a mediocre or even bad goaltender on a really great team. He was a great goaltender on a great team. And, you know, he was able to shine. I mean, look at it. He won overall, I think, on the Penguins, he won 269 out of 369 games for them in his career with the Penguins. So that included two Stanley Cups and should have included a third. But, you know, he was exactly what they needed to not have to worry about the back end. Right. Because how many teams do we look at all the time in modern era that are just a powerhouse of offense that just suck on the back end? I mean, there's plenty. There's plenty. I mean, the list is endless. And if you have problems in the back end, if you have problems on your D line and then you have problems in net, you can score as many goals as you want. But if you let in just as many, if not more, you're not going to win any games. So. Yes, being on a team like that certainly helped, but I don't take that anything away from him as a player because of that and discount kind of what he did 
overall because if you look at his body of work, I guess, not just with the Penguins, but overall, I brought up the point about his stick handling ability. Today, as we talk, he's the all-time leader in points by goalie. He had 48 points. How do you get 48 points as a goaltender? Pass to Mario Lemieux. Yeah, you have to be able to pass. You have to have puck control. You got to be able to know where guys are. And you have to have done it before Brodeur came in and wrecked everything for everybody else. Well, yeah. Once you change the style, then it goes away. And then then something else happens. So, look, Brasso didn't stay with the Penguins his whole career. I mean, he bounced around after he left Pittsburgh. From his generation, it would be hard for me to not put him in the top 10, if not closer to top five, just simply because he played in an era where goaltenders, let's face it, were basically irrelevant, right? And to have a player like that play at that kind of level for as long as he did, I I, I don't think there's any denying that he deserves to be in the hall. Oh, yeah, no, no, no arguments there at all. He made a dominant Penguins team into a juggernaut for a few seasons there. I'm looking at his stats right now. So, like, yeah, that span between Buffalo and, like, his first half of his career with the Penguins were great. And then it seems like towards the end, he bounced around. He played with Ottawa for seven games at the end of the 99-2000 season. He sat out in 2000-2001 and did not play was with the Carolina Hurricanes in 2001-2002. And then he was also with the Toronto Maple Leafs in 2001-2002 for four games. And then he was with the Blues for six games in 2002-2003. So other than those 34 games with the um, Hurricanes, where he was respectable that year, he played a handful of games with the Senators, the Leafs, and the Blues. And I think sometimes people kind of fixate too much on how it ended, you know, like... Oh, he was great with the Penguins, and yeah, he had a great rookie season, but then, and it shouldn't be about that, right? How many people sit here and go, oh yeah, you know, the St. Louis Blues legend, Martin Brodeur. Yeah, nobody cares about that. Nobody even thinks about that. Other than the fact he has an Opeachy card with him in a Blues uniform, that's about all you get. So, Oh, Brodeur? Yeah. I I still hate the fact that I can't find a a Jersey Swatch card of, of, of his Blues jersey. It's because he only had one. He had one jersey, and he probably kept it. It doesn't even have to have been a a game-used jersey. Even, you know, a a photo op jersey where they just slap it on. It's like, okay, clearly that's the Blues jersey. I can throw that in there, and my collection can be nearly complete. Call up Fanatics. They'll make one for you. You collect Brodeur cards? I just stumbled onto so many uh, Brodeur jersey swatch cards. I just started looking at them, and I was like, okay, I've got this one, I've got this one, I've got this one. What else did he do? Okay, I've got an all-star jersey one. I need to get... Representative of his whole scope. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, the thing, though, is that, I mean, Barrasso played 19 years in the league. Jim, as you said, goalies, they'll play for a couple of years, and then they kind of fizzle out. They end up in the minors, they end up overseas, whatever. So, I mean, to play, like, 10 years in the NHL as a goaltender is, well, to get to the NHL is remarkable. So we all know that's all a given, right? But to last that long as a goalie, but then to last nearly two decades as a goalie, you're doing something right. Heck, even if you're like, oh, well, he only had a handful of games with the Blues or whatever at the end of his career. Well, you know what? He was still good enough at 37, 38 years old to get that handful of games. You you know what I mean? Like, instead of him saying, oh, let's call up some kid from the minors, he can't do any better, right, or any worse, right? With a guy like that, 
his career stands out and his accomplishments stand out. They're exceptional. But for the Hockey Hall, how long has he been eligible? Been long eligible time. 2005, maybe? Here's the thing. I always felt that Six, with, Barrasso, with Barrasso being high on that list of goaltenders that were always eligible but never elected, I always chalked that up to, well, there's the whole personality with the media. Mm-hmm. Because at least in Pittsburgh – Pittsburgh sports media is always highly critical and he didn't take lightly to all of that. And he wasn't the most personal guy when it came to the media. Now, when it came to fans and stuff like that, there was really never an issue. And I actually met him years and years ago. It would have been, I think 89, maybe 90 ish. Nice guy was great with fans, everything else. You would always hear about how, he was a jerk to the local media. And so I always felt like he got blackballed from most of the accomplishments outside of, you know, actually playing the game. And I kind of felt like that worked against him. I don't know if you heard the interview with him afterward, but he was basically like, I just figured I was never getting the call and whatever. You know, I was happy with my career. I'm happy with my accomplishments. And then my agent called and said, hey, I just read on Twitter that you're going into the Hall of Fame. And he's like, what? (laughs) And they couldn't even get a hold of him to call him. You know, it's validation for somebody that kind of got overlooked for so long. But again, we just talked about it. Goaltenders tend to get overlooked. So it gives everybody hope that someday they'll get the call. Sure. Absolutely. Not everybody, but more goalies at least. Well, and there's plenty out there that are potential candidates at this point. It does seem that the bar is a little higher for goaltenders, and maybe that is unfair. When I looked at that list of eligible players, like prior to the Hall of Fame announcement, when I was perusing the list, and I was just like, oh yeah, Lundquist is definitely in. But then I'm like going down this list, and I'm like, well, I'm surprised this goalie isn't in, and this goalie isn't in. Well, okay, so they made up for it because they added a few goalies. It does seem that like whatever threshold there is it's higher for goaltenders i mean you either have to win a bunch of cups like grant fear or billy smith or patrick waugh or martin broder for that matter right you know like you have to win like a bunch of cups or have like a bunch of personal awards it's like you have to have everything you know what i mean and garage have, full of hardware but i mean barrasso yeah. has the hardware i mean yeah, he he's got three individual awards he's got two stanley cups He was the first U.S.-born goaltender to hit the 300-win mark. And, I mean, as Tim said, I mean, 48 assists. I mean, he's got the most points, the most assists, and most points by any goaltender. A stat like that, they should have probably looked a little harder and said, you know, this is pretty awesome. And the other thing, too, I don't know if we've opened the floodgates to goaltenders going forward. It could be that, or it could be, hey, we're going to put in three because we're not going to elect another one for the next 10 years. That was my thought, honestly, because I'm I'm the glass half empty kind of guy, and I feel like they're like, okay, good, but we don't have to pay any attention for at least five years now. Yeah, because if you look at the list of, of guys that are eligible that, that haven't gone in, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it here in a minute, but Cujo, he's got almost a thousand games as a freaking goaltender. You know, he's he's not. That's ridiculous. Yeah, you got you got Osgood, who's got over 400 wins. 
think those two were two of the big ones that stood out. Well, yeah, you got other legends like Mike Richter on that list. You got John you got Van Beesbrook. That's Felix the one. Cat. Van Beesbrook, who I think gets kind of the black ball from some of the yeah dumb, dumb things he said over the last 10 years. But, but I mean, you're talking about guys that were legendary goaltenders within their time frame and were notable stars on the teams that they played on. But, you know, those guys haven't got a sniff yet. So, yeah, I mean, it could be next year you got two more and next year you got two. Or it could be we don't see another one for a long time. So, I don't know. I don't know. Well, completing the hat trick of goaltenders, we also had Mike Vernon inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. And I had mixed feelings about that one. You know, there's that joke about, like, the Hockey Hall of Really Good. Like, there's the Hall of Fame and then there's, like, the Hall of Really Good. And then you can always cherry pick a few players and be like, oh, these players shouldn't be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. They were really good. They're not all-time greats. So with Vernon, I kind of go back and forth. I thought he was like a really good goaltender. But then again, I think I was looking at his whole body of work. And now when I was compiling these stats, and I look back at like that range from like 1988 to 1993, I mean, he was one of the best goaltenders in the league. Just to give some statistics here. So 782 games played. He had a record of 385 wins, 274 losses, 92 ties during the regular season, a 2.98 goals allowed average in his career, and an 889 save percentage, 27 shutouts as well. And remember, he came into the league really as a full-timer in 85-86. He had a handful of games before then, but he came in as a full-timer in 85-86, And so that was that wide open style of hockey from like the 70s and 80s and, you know, up until like the mid 90s when the New Jersey Devils ruined everything for everyone and and made hockey not fun. (laughs) Let's just win one to nothing, guys, because that's also a win. You know, just getting on to like in the playoffs, he had a record of 77 and 56 goals allowed average of 268 save percentage of 896. He won the Jennings Trophy in 95-96 when he was with the Red Wings. He shared that with Chris Osgood. He won the Conn Smite Trophy as the Stanley Cup MVP in 97 with the Red Wings. He won the Cup twice. He also won it in 1989 with the Calgary Flames and in 97 with the Detroit Red Wings. And then second team All-Star in 89. And then he played in the All-Star game 88, 89, 90, 91, and 93. I used to see Mike Vernon a lot because... The Blackhawks didn't necessarily play the Flames a lot, although I do remember them like destroying the Blackhawks in the 89 conference finals en route to the Flames winning the Stanley Cup that year. And like the whole Flames team was awesome. So I look at that and I go, yeah, the whole Flames team was awesome. But Mike Vernon, I mean, he played incredible for the Flames those years. You can only have what? One first team all-star goalie and one second team all-star goalie. And when you have like, Patrick Waugh and Grant Fuhrer and like other great goalies. It's kind of hard to be like one of the best two goalies in the league, but you know, all-star game, you get, you know, a few more goalies, especially when they started adding three goalies to the all-star game in the nineties, but he was just really freaking good. And then even like the latter half of his career with the Red Wings, he was really good. I say really good, but I guess I should say great. Cause when you're the MVP of the Stanley cup, you're great. When you're the starting goalie on two Stanley Cup winning teams, you're great. And when you win the MVP award, 
you're great. Yeah, and don't forget that second cup and the Conn Smythe. He won that after people were like, yeah, Vernon's done. He's washed. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, because yeah. when the Flames traded him, it just seemed like they were giving up on him. Like, ah, oh, he's not good anymore. Let's get rid of him, right? The Red Wings, you know, they, they got him and he he shined with them. I actually thought it was kind of odd that they traded him after he won the Conn Smythe Trophy. Well, I guess his trade value was like at an all-time high, you know? So then he looked towards the end of his career when he was like the Sharks and whatnot. What do you guys remember, if anything, about Vernon? I feel like he's just one of those guys that he gets that perception of not being an elite goaltender just because he comes from that era where you do have a few that you can pick and choose from going forward, and he gets left off. and People don't talk about him. And there's plenty of times where goaltenders, you know, like, you know, Calgary may have said, you know, oh, you know, he's washed up, it's not worth anything. And then the goaltender just finds himself in the right situation with the right players in front of them, and that just reignites their career. There wasn't any gas left in the tank, per se, but they needed a, a new new batch of chemistry to get them, get them rolling again, and, and there is something still there. They need the right players. It is still a team sport. Well, right, and it absolutely. doesn't hurt that you're teamed up with Chris Osgood as your partner. Both right. of those guys pushed each other, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing, too, about Vernon, he's 5'9". You think of goalies now as being 6'3", yeah. 6'5", like tall and lanky and filling a lot of net. Vernon's my height. I'm 5'9". Compare him with, like, a Ben Bishop or Devin Dubnik. I know it's crazy, right? Like six seven, six six. Well, Scott Darling. expected to be Scott. Scott. I mean, well, Scott Darling. Don't don't say that name. Anyway, goalies were you know there was like an era where they were expected to be athletic. You know they they didn't have to be gargantuan and stuff. And then once they they did, then you know and and they were winning. Uh, teams started like trying to find the tallest goalies they could. But for a good long while, especially when I first started watching. Yeah, athletic goalies were, you know, the norm, it seemed like, and they were exciting to watch. When I was a little kid, I always used to think that all the goaltenders were fat. Right, Like Every goaltender was fat because why wouldn't you want the fattest guy in front of the net? Because he fills up the most space, so he's going to block the majority of that space. And then you go meet him, he's the scrawniest guy on the team. That was the thing, the very first like professional goaltender that I ever got to meet was when I was really little. And it was like when we played hockey at the local rink and the Penguins would often send players as like a team ambassador thing as part of the program you were in and they'd come and teach you stuff and all of that kind of thing. And I just remember players coming and I would see them. I'd be like, wow, this guy's like skinny. Like there's nothing to him. Like, why is, why are they so small? And yeah, I always used to think they were fat and like big, huge guys. You just shoved them in the net. Now, which goalie was it? Cause now I want to know. Uh, back then, God, I don't, I don't even remember who it was to be honest with you. I feel like it might have been Roberto Romano, but I don't think that's right. I was going to guess Roberto Romano. Yeah, I think it was, it might have been a year or two before he was on the team. Oh, wow. So maybe Michelle Dion? Yeah, I don't even think it was. I think it might have been like maybe a backup guy. Wow. I don't don't remember who it was. 
life-changing uh, experience for you. Players came all the time, so it was like it was not like a big thing. They mm-hmm. were you would always be there. Half the time they'd be there like helping out, and you just thought they were another coach. Oh, oh. Mm-hmm. is their summer job? Yeah, I so know. I always thought they were fat guys. And if I learned anything from ice hockey, the video mm-hmm. game, yes, yeah. the fat guys were best. Were they? Yeah. Though? Were they? They were yeah, pretty they... slow, but man, could they Shut... shoot? They, they and... crushed the hell out of them. Yeah, hard hard to knock down. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, fat guy rules. So yeah, so Vernon, looking at this now, seems like yeah, definitely long deserved for him to finally be in the hall. A uh, long time coming. Because yeah, like I said, I mean in the in the eighties and nineties, even though the Flames only won one cup, they always were like they were always in the mix. They were always like a team to beat, and he was a big reason for that. Don't oh. forget, he has one of the most famous goalie fights of all time too when he fought Patrick Waugh. Okay, I did watch that. That was yes. pretty funny. Well, funny. He did pretty well for himself. Yes. That alone should get him in the hall. We'll talk about Vernon's rookie cards, rookie card singular, and Tom Barrasso's rookie cards, plural, or cards. I mean, Barrasso has cards in 84, 85 tops in OPG. It's not a very hard card to find. A lot of 84, 85 OPG was printed. So even though it's a highly desirable set, it's pretty easy to find cards from, you know, 82, 83, 83, 84, 84, 85. And in 84, 85 tops, I think he was one of the double prints because I think you're right. never had a problem finding a Tom Barrasso rookie card. I think I yeah. might have a Tom Barrasso rookie card. I think the tops, I think that one was double printed. So I think there's a lot out there, but he's got, what he's got like a all-star card mm-hmm. also in that set. Mm-hmm. And he's got the um, in the, the Calder, OPG the, set. He's got trophy cards. Yeah, he's got the Calder card and the um, the Vezina card mm-hmm. as well. So there's there's a few options for rookie or rookie related cards for those. But again, it's from an era where there there's an abundance of them and they're very cheap, a buck mm-hmm. or two. You yeah. can find them. Yeah, I mean, I, I see those as maybe like a five dollar card. Like that's just kind of like in my mind. Yeah, I mean, if you look hard enough, you can find mm-hmm. anything for less but like it's not a common but it's not like a break the bank kind of card and then with mike vernon 87 88 opici a little harder to find because at that point it seemed like opici wasn't printing as many cards doesn't mean it's not an easy set to find it's an easy set to find it's an easy card to find but he does have a rookie card in 87 88 only the opici set because the top set they didn't focus on as many Canadian players. And you Kinda can like, find that Vernon card for about 10 bucks. Yeah. yeah. Pre-junk wax era, but not like difficult. I mean, really any mainstream tops or peachy hockey card from the 80s is not hard to find. You'll just pay more for it, but it's not like a difficult card to find. Yeah, certainly not hard to find because there's not a tops version. I think you'll pay about roughly about 10 bucks or so for the for this one if there right. was a tops version i'm sure it'd be three bucks but there isn't <laughs> yeah pierre turgeon we did have a non-goalie ex-nhler make it into the hockey hall of fame this year so the thing about turgeon is that okay so he played from 87 88 to 2006 2007 now remember he lost the season because of the 0405 lockout so he played 19 years in the NHL, 515 goals. I'll say that again, 515 
goals, 812 assists, 1,337 points. He did this in 1,294 games, right? Playoffs, another 35 goals and 62 assists for 97 points in 109 games. So in the regular season, he was better than a point per game. In the playoffs, he was about a point per game. You know, playoffs being its own animal. He does have one individual award, the Lady Bing Trophy, which he won in 92-93. That's for the guy who scores a lot of goals, but doesn't win the scoring title usually. It's almost kind of like a runner-up when there's like the most gentlemanly player. It's not a knock against him. I mean, he was a gentlemanly player, but... That year, he was a gentleman, but he also scored 58 goals and 74 assists for 132 points in 83 games played. Those of you saying 83 games played, Sal, what drugs are you on? And let me tell you, my friends, there was a time for a couple of years where the NHL had an 84-game regular season. Did he want to go fishing that other game and just decide not to show up, or...? Uh, He forgot there was 84. He thought it was only 83. Thought it was only 83, right? So here's my benchmark for Hall of Fame consideration. If it's a forward and they score 400 goals, it should be a conversation. Like 400 goals is the minimum. If it's 500 goals, it should really be a conclusion. Okay, assists. If they get 600 assists, it's a conversation. Again, maybe you don't get 400 goals, but you get 600 assists. Maybe you get 600 assists and, you know, 300 goals. It should be a conversation. If they get 700 assists, it should be a foregone conclusion. Points. 1,000 points. You score 1,000 points in the NHL. It definitely needs to be a conversation should this person be in the Hall of Fame. If you score 1,300 points in the NHL, it should be a foregone conclusion. I don't know why it took them so freaking long to put Pierre Turgeon in the Hockey Hall of Fame. I mean... For the longest time, it was like, well, he's the guy with the most points who's not in the Hall of Fame. And I look at these numbers and I go, these are insane numbers. Why were they dragging their heels? I don't know the player, um, so I can only speculate. But I know a lot of voting when it comes to the Hockey Hall of Fame, just like anything, it's a popularity contest. Mm Mm-hmm. He's not a guy that jumps off the page like, oh, look at this superstar. He was a guy that just quietly racked up points and went to, to work every day. And yeah, he, he would be in conversations about, yeah, that guy's pretty good. Oh, look at this other guy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he was in an era where there was a lot of that, a lot of forwards that were just outstanding. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like five and seven to me, I don't think it should be a question. If you get 500 goals and 700 assists, like, why are we even talking about it? If we're not going to use Stanley Cups or World Championships or anything like that as as a gauge or Olympic gold medals and what whatnot, if they've got a couple pieces of hardware from individual awards and they got five and seven, yeah, why are we having that conversation? And you're right. He had 13, was his total, 13, 27, something like that. That's a lot. 13, 37. That's a big number. And there's plenty of guys that are in the hall that don't have that many. So that's the thing. There is no Mendoza line for getting into the Hall of Fame. 
some guys are above it, some guys are below it, and it's there's it's I don't even want to call it a gray area. It's just a smattering of like, okay, these people are are in the general range. Let's talk about it. Yeah, yes, no, maybe, and then they just eventually throw darts at a dartboard and flip a coin. Well, wait, I'm sorry. What's a Mendoza line? I feel stupid now for having to ask, but I'm going to ask because probably one listener needs to know. At least okay. one listener. Uh, the uh, Mendoza line is uh, its actually a baseball term, but it, it gets bastardized right. to a lot of different things in popular culture. But uh, there was a catcher in uh, Major League Baseball. I can't remember his first name, but his last name is Mendoza. He wasn't a great player, but he wasn't a bad player. He was fine behind the plate, and he had just a steady, steady batting average that was just enough to keep him into the major leagues for a pretty long while. And like that, he he was just steady in that regard. And anybody that could keep their batting average above his stayed in the league anybody that couldn't get up to him up to what he was batting they went back down to the minors and so that was referred to as the mendoza line that term is used all over the place now yeah and it was mario mendoza sure let's go with that yeah he played for the pirates from like 74 to 79 and only two seasons out of that whole entire time did he hit above 200 yeah so the 200 was the what they considered to be the mendoza line so anybody below 200, you were probably going to be sent packing if right. you consistently did that. But so. if Mendoza bats 175, then he'd be like, well, but but now the line is 175, right? Like, well, and he'd he probably get sent down for a stint in the minors. <laughs> he did. I mean, many years he was in like the 180s, 190s. It's a generic term that they use now for where's the cutoff point of offensive futility? And that's mm-hmm. that's where it is. Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, the Pirates are still still doing that with their current catcher. Interesting. So definitely is a popularity contest. And I mean, I'm looking at like some of the teams that Turgeon played on. I mean, OK, played for the Sabres in the late 80s, early 90s, played for the Islanders in the early 90s, then played for the Canadians in the mid 90s the Blues in the late 90s and early 2000s, then the Dallas Stars, and then um, the Colorado Avalanche, right? So, I mean, he played on different, you know, he played on a few different teams, um, not any particularly great teams, although I think the Blues are pretty good by the turn of the century, although they didn't win a cup. But, I mean, they were they were a better, better team. He did great with the Islanders. He did great with the Sabres. But, like, you don't play 19 seasons in the NHL if you're a slouch. You don't play two decades in the best league if you're just okay. I mean, there are guys... More than just serviceable. No, and there are serviceable players who probably play close to that. You know, 15, 16 seasons. When you're getting to like 20 seasons or close to 20 seasons, you've got to be really good to hang at that level for that long and put up that many points. You know, obviously, if you keep scoring, you keep staying in the league, right? But I throw up my arms at this. I'm like, what are they thinking? What are they drinking? If you're a point-per-game player or over a point-per-game statistically, there's no reason for you not to be there. Right, and yet they made Eric Lundros wait point-per-game or better. 
Unless you've royally cheesed a lot of people off or have said well, something extraordinarily unpopular in the media. That's exactly it. And I don't recall ever hearing anything bad about Pierre Turgeon. Yeah, the ever. only bad thing about Pierre Turgeon was that awful hit that he took from behind when uh, Dale Hunter, like, mm-hmm. cheap-shotted him into the boards in the 93 playoffs. I remember watching that game live, and I was just like, holy sh! Because it's like, and the Islanders are up 5-1, to one, and he's, like, celebrating, and Hunter just runs him behind into the boards. Okay, so that's the worst thing, is that he absorbed a really awful hit from a really good, but also nasty, nasty player. You got to clarify that, though, too. It wasn't like he was skating down after the puck going out and got hit. It was he just scored a goal, and Hunter was pissed, and he yep. came over and cracked him. While he, got, he was celebrating. Yeah, while he was yeah. celebrating, because he put his hands in the air. He was skating towards the glass, and he got blasted. Hunter got suspended for that, too. 21 games. Yeah. 21 games. Yeah. I hate to talk about that, because we're honoring Pierre Turgeon and talking yeah, part about... part of his history. Well, I mean, I mean, that just... That's part of the highlight reel, unfortunately. He gets hurt. That affects the Islanders' chances. And yeah, I mean, of course... Now, wait, when the, when the Penguins were eliminated by the Islanders, was that in round one or round two? We don't talk about that in my No, house, no, I, no, honestly, because <laughs> I, I know you're, you're, you're sad that Darius Kasparaitis pretty much manhandled Yarmir Yager that series and, and, and couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't three-peat. But I guess the point I'm making is that the Islanders were a good team that season. Like, they were good enough to get past the Capitals, and they were good enough to beat the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions, and Turgeon was a big part of that reason. So I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that was the Patrick Division Finals. So Yes, okay, uh, the good old Patrick Division. Good old David Volick, who I hate to this day. Turgeon's rookie cards. 88-89 tops, 88-89 OPG. One of my favorite sets, little pushpin design, little pushpin in the corner. Um, not an expensive card. Like a, Again, I'm going to say it's like a $5 card, and Tim's going to tell you you can get one for $2.30 if you look hard enough. You can get them for less than that. Well, maybe not anymore, right? Jump on uh, Com C right now. There's 37 of them for $1.80. Ooh, all right. It's sitting in somebody's bicycle spokes. Yeah. No, time to invest in Pierre Turgeon. I mean, it's only That's, been, he's only been eligible for the hall for, you know, 12, 13 years. So now's the time. There's probably about a dozen or more under three bucks. Cheapest ones are about a buck 80 if you go to the Opeachy one, 250 and up. Nice. Depending on the condition and how centered they look. But nice. Yeah. I mean, they're not from scarce sets by any means, but definitely a cool card to have, especially now that he's in the hall. Okay, so the women's player who was inducted, Caroline Ouellette. So she won four Olympic gold medals, 2002, 2006, 2010, and 2014. She won a gold medal at six IIHF Women's World Championships and in another six silver medals at the IIHF World Championships. So, I mean, you know, Canada's a great team, obviously. The Canadian women's team, it's like... Usually it's Canada who wins a gold. Sometimes it's the U.S. Sometimes it's a team that surprises like Sweden or Finland. She played 14 seasons in various pro women's hockey leagues. In the 
2003 NCAA Women's Tournament, she led the UMD hockey team, University of Minnesota Duluth hockey team, to a national title, and she was named the MVP. She was the Canadian Women's Hockey League leading scorer in 2011. She was the Canadian Women's Hockey League MVP in 2009 and 2011. And in the Canadian Women's Hockey League, she won the Clarkson Cup four times, and that's their league championship. So well-decorated at the collegiate level, at the professional level, and at the international level. So totally makes sense why she would be in. She stopped playing pro not too long ago. Maybe I want to say within the past five years. So she's eligible. It wasn't like she was waiting forever. Looking at women's hockey players with gold medals, she was the only one with four golds who was not yet in the hall. So now she is. Yeah, there's only three. Sorry, four Olympic golds. I should qualify that. Yeah, she's. there's only three female players that have four. Mm-hmm. The other two are already there. So right. It, um, it definitely makes sense. It makes all the sense. I'm actually surprised they didn't take another female player, too, because there's many that on that list been, of eligibility. Mm-hmm. There, there's, that argument has been actually been floated around a, a number of places in the past week or so. The fact that uh, this, this would have been like the big year probably to have taken at least one other female player into the into the hall. And I don't believe that, that there's any rule against that. No, they have they, spot for two. two. The yeah. only time they've ever taken two was the very first time in 2010. Yeah, when the, which made sense. But they haven't taken two since. It's only been one, and there's plenty they there. Couldn't, they couldn't find a female goalie to throw in there just for the hell of it? Um, All right. I think there's only – there were only two, like, Hall of Fame eligible, quote-unquote. I mean, there's others that are eligible, but there are mm. only two on that list, I think. But, yeah, considering the other people that are on there, I mean, my prediction was Jennifer Botterell was going to go in. That's what I thought for sure was going to happen. I thought so, Obviously, it didn't. But Ouellette has more gold medals. She does. More accolades. Yeah, she absolutely does. I'm not arguing with that pick. I mean, that is easily... Solid. That's a solid pick. I mean, she's got so much prestige as a player, and she's had so much influence on female hockey players. Uh, you know, since she's been since she's been playing, I mean, the fact that she's got all of that hardware, and not only that, when the CWHL and the the NWHL when when they were still active leagues, I mean, she dominated both of those leagues. I think she was MVP in like 2009 and 2011. Mm-hmm. Come on, it was kind of a no brainer to put her in. I, like right. I said, I'm not diminishing anything from her. I just was surprised that they didn't take two. I think I was more familiar with Botterill as a player. I was more familiar with her. So when I saw that she wasn't in the Hall of Fame, I'm like, oh, well, she should have been. But then I look and I'm like, all right, well, they could have, honestly, they could have taken both of them together. And nobody would have been like, oh, why'd you do that? But then again, maybe they said, oh, it's really time for Mike Vernon. You know, just to backtrack to Vernon for just a minute, Lanny McDonald, former Calgary Flames player, and he was the team captain when the Flames won the Cup in 89. I think he's the chair of the Hall of Fame induction committee. And so he called Mike Vernon to let him know, 
Vernon thought he was calling him to ask him if he wanted to play golf because they're, they're golfing buddies. <laughs> so he's, he's oh, cool, Lanny's calling me. He probably wants to play golf, right? You know, and he's like, no, you're in the Hall of Fame now, right? I guess that's the thing is, is like, we agree that it was kind of, these two goalies were kind of overdue, but yes, they could have absolutely taken another women's player. There's like a limit and I don't have that memorized. It's four male players, two female players. And then they go to the builders. Yeah. I mean, the thing, though, is I think about, like, with the female players is that really, if you think about it, like, women's hockey at the international level has really only been a thing since the early 90s. I mean, I know it's been around before then, but it it didn't. I mean, really, what put it on the map is when it became a medal sport in 98. Right. I mean, there were there were world championships before then, and there were like various professional leagues. I mean, I know you guys have heard of Angela James, who was like considered like the Wayne Gretzky of women's hockey. And Mm -hmm. as women's hockey was becoming a medal sport in the Olympics, that was kind of like when her career was winding down. So she did all this great stuff before women's hockey has the attention that it has now. You can't really go back 30 years and say, oh, yeah, there's a player that we overlooked. And then the other thing is, is that there's not that much attention paid to professional hockey. And then we also have professional hockey leagues that came and went. It's not like where you can look at the NHL and say, oh, this league's been around for 125 or 100 years or whatever, right? And I'm thinking Stanley Cup's 125, but the league's been around for over 100 years, right? So you have like a lot of players, a lot more players to look at that you can kind of pick and choose. And I feel like with women's hockey, if they do two every season, they're probably going to run out that would be eligible for the hall. So That's, they're trying to save it? Okay, kind well, of. I mean, I'm not saying it's right. That's just my theory anyway. Is it time for them to start adding more slots for people that, that can make it every year? Or are we still good with it just being the, the allotted slots that we have now? I think it's an okay number. I don't think it's bad. You don't want to wash the thing and just like every year take 10 people. Well, no, not that many. but Yeah, it'll end up watering it down and like it ends up being the Hall of pretty good, not the Hall of Fame. I was following what you're saying, Sal, and I think you might be onto something there. All right. Saying that there isn't there isn't as large of a pool of candidates to pull from. But I also don't think that if you have two slots available to bring people in and you have people that are qualified for it, why make them wait an additional year? Because here's the thing. Let's say Jen Botterill was or is eligible this year, which she was. If they take her next year, they could have taken her this year. So why didn't they? You know what I'm saying? Because there's a slot there and it's available. I mean, go down the list. She's definitely not the highest point scorer on the list. I mean, you can look at Jenny Potter. Jenny Potter's got four world championships and scored 64 points. I mean, she's pretty high up on the list and definitely a probably a pretty worthy candidate compared to the other stats. I mean, look at Monique Lamoureux. She's got mm-hmm. 50 points in international play, six world championships, and she won like an MVP award in one of those tournaments. So... That's another person that could be looked at. Plus, the body of work is a lot bigger. So there are people that are eligible and have the statistics 
that they've set as the bar to meet. So that's one thing I don't understand. If there's an automatic person and everybody knows they're going to go in, I don't think they should take a spot away from somebody else because you're going to take them anyway. So, yeah, you're not going to make them wait because they're automatic. So, like, when Hank went in, because everybody was like, okay, Hank's going in no matter what, I don't think that should take away that spot. They should have still brought somebody else in. And since there's two female positions, why not just take the two female positions? Especially if you bring that person in the following year. That's what will bug me. So, anyway, Caroline Ouellette does not have as many hockey cards as some of these other players that we've spoken about because they're really has not been any cards of the women's professional hockey leagues. So really the only cards that she would be in would be in sets that focus on international players. So like sets that like in the game put out or upper deck put out that focused on either team Canada or on international tournaments. So she has some cards in those sets from like the late two thousands. You said you have one of her cards. I have the 0910 OPG Canadian Heroes card of hers. Definitely not a rookie card by any means, but it's one of very few that I know of that are out there. You're right. It's mostly just in the game stuff. And then recent, more recently, Upper Deck's been doing those, um, like the Tim Hortons Legend set. Mm-hmm. And they've done those Team Canada Junior sets that feature a lot of the female players on Team Canada. So, yeah, she's got cards in all of those. What would you call her rookie card then? She has a card in 0405 Canadian World Women's Hockey Championship, card number 14. And I'm looking at this, and this card is sponsored by the Chronicle Herald publication. And I'm looking at this, and it looks like kind of like a giveaway card. So maybe those don't count. And I think all... All the time when we talk about what's a rookie card and what's not, it's got to be something that's a major release in order to be kind of out there. And it's hard to say rookie card per se because none of these cards of hers, for instance, feature her as a professional hockey player. Right. From either the W, the NWHL or the CW League or you know, any of those, they're all international. So I don't know if you do make an exception for those. Do you call them PRCs? Do you call them rookie related? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the right rule is for that. I think you make up whatever rule you want, but I mean, if you were going to ask me, I'd say it would be the 0607 in the game going for the gold women's national team set, or maybe the 0708 in the game. O Canada set because in the game cards, aren't like the things that you could buy at Walmart, but they weren't super hard to find either. You know what I mean? They're not like impossible to find, but they're not like the easiest thing to find, but you can absolutely find them. Like it irritates me that going for the gold set wasn't that easy. I think that was a complete set. Those weren't boxes or packs. I think that was a complete set. Okay. It was sold as a complete set. Okay. But Oh Canada, that was in packs. Oh Canada was, was right. Yes. What annoys me is like, 0405, the lockout season, when Upper Deck did offbeat rookie cards, young guns, I should say. 0405, Upper Deck was like, hey, we're going to do young guns of people who are hockey players or hockey related people because there's no rookies, right? So they did a rookie card of like Gary Thorne, the longtime play by play announcer. 
and they did a Young Guns card of Cami Granado. And so, like, people consider that Cami Granado's rookie card because it's her first card on, like, a mainstream NHL hockey set. But you ask me, it's one of her early 90s classic hockey cards is her rookie card. So it's really up to the collector. I mean, if somebody's like, oh, this Cami Granado 0405, that's her Young Gun, that's her rookie card. I was like, no, it's her 1992 classic pro hockey prospect. Just for the heck of it, I looked up to see if she had a Sports Illustrated for Kids card, but no, there wasn't one. Nothing. Oh, those are fun. Yeah. Hey, some of those do count as rookie cards. To go back to those Young Gun Legends cards, have you seen how much some of those sell for? I know, it's ridiculous. The rehashing of, like, the Mike Madonna or the Sackick or the Messier or even the Mario card. I mean, if you can find them, them. if you can find them, I mean, they're ridiculous. I mean, people are willing to pay a lot for some of these. These are kind of like rehashing. The ones of like Lemieux and Madonna and Ronick and those, the dealer want like $40 for a Mike Madonna young gun. And I'll be like, uh, nah, it's all right. Yeah, I really don't need to complete my 0405 upper deck set that bad. There's things I could live without. Meanwhile, it'll only cost you $1.40 for a Mike Keenan young gun. Yeah, <laughs> he's got a young gun in that too. Go figure. Moving on, Ken Hitchcock in the builders category. He's coached 1,598 games in the NHL. He has 849 wins, which is fourth in NHL history, fourth most wins. 534 losses, 88 ties, and 127 overtime losses because he coached in both pre- and post-lockout games. He was the coach of the Dallas Stars when they won the Stanley Cup. He won the Jack Adams Award in 2012 as Coach of the Year. And he was a coach of the Stars, Flyers, Blue Jackets, Blues, and Oilers. So happy for him to get in the hall because he's one of those coaches that has just been around a long time. Fourth and wins, that's success. But I mean, I just not even knowing that statistic, I didn't know that statistic until today. If somebody said Ken Hitchcock, I'd be like, oh yeah, longtime coach, good coach, successful coach. When a team like hired Ken Hitchcock, you weren't like, this guy again? You're like, oh, Ken Hitchcock, well, let's see what he does. Let's see what good he can do for this team. And that's how I always looked at him whenever he coached a team. I remember reading a story about Ken Hitchcock. So a lot of players talk about Hitch Mm -hmm. that have had him, and they talk very respectfully about Hitch as being a great coach. He's never a guy that always stood out to me. He was just always there. Like, he was always a coach on some team somewhere. There was Hitchcock. He was always there. But I remember reading a story about him and how he got his start and how he didn't know what the heck he was doing and had no clue and didn't even have a resume and interviewed for that Kamloops job. Didn't have anything. And he, like, called somebody on a payphone on his way to the interview or before he got on the plane and asked them to read off what his stats were as a as a coach for the previous seasons that he was coaching so he could write them down, and he presented them with a piece of paper just from a notepad, and that was his resume. <laughs> now he got that job. Something like that's crazy, to go from something at that level all the way up to being one of the greatest coaches in NHL history and you know, having a career that spanned as long as it did 
not only does he have all the NHL stuff, he has all the international stuff too. You know, he coached the Olympic team, the World Cup team. You know, he's got championships in multiple leagues. It's sort of like he quietly acquired all of that. Though, so, like you were saying, you know, he was he was just always there. He was always expected of him. Not necessarily greatness, but it, it was it, it may be a step up for whatever team he bounced to. What was it, what was the longest tenure he had with any one team? So looking at this, so he coached 22 seasons in the NHL. So he was with the Dallas Stars for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years. Wow. The Flyers for one, two, three and a half years, not even a half years. Oh six, oh seven. He was fired after eight games. And then he went right to the Columbus Blue Jackets. So they got hired mid-season. One, two, three, four seasons with Columbus. One, two, three, four, five, six with the Blues. One-year stint with the Stars. And then uh, a one-year stint with the Oilers. So I guess the seven years at the start of his head coaching career is his longest stint. It feels like three years is around the average of what most coaches get with a team. Sometimes it's two, sometimes four, whatever. But a good amount of times, like, their welcome is worn out eventually. I do remember Blues fans getting pretty irate with Hitch towards the end of his tenure there. I do remember that. But, you know, he hung around probably longer with a number of those teams than than average. So that's certainly respectable. Yeah. Fortune. That's the thing. When we were sitting here not saying anything, it's like you try to think of stuff about Hitchcock. It's like he was kind of always there, and he was always a great coach. But he's never like one of those ones that jumps off the page at you, and you're like, "Oh yeah, you're like he's he's that guy." He's never been really one to like jump out in front of the media or get in reporters' faces or mm-hmm. say crazy. He's not yeah, Mike Keenan. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't say crazy stuff or or get out of get out of hand. He just goes to work and does his job and he's good at it. I mean, one thing about hitch teams, if you look back at, they were always physical teams. Those teams would just, they were relentless grinding teams that would just check you to death. I mean, that was his thing. That was important to him and all of his teams did it. I don't have a whole lot to say about him. He was a lot of times in the Western Conference, so most of the games I watched, I didn't get to see him. Coaches don't really have rookie cards. I mean, well, sometimes they do if they played in the they NHL played. and yeah. then they, but he he never played. Uh, so I will just point this out, though, because this is just fun. So Ken Hitchcock did have some cards when he was a junior coach, and his earliest card is the 84-85 card from the Kamloops Blazers team set, which pictures him then as a 33-year-old head coach of the team. If the guy just was a coach and not like previous to that, like a professional player at some level, then they don't really have cards unless, you know, unless it's like with a team set, but nothing mainstream, but just, just kind of fun. Just wanted to throw that out. Maybe, maybe they should start making coaches cards and they can have, uh, you know, they won't necessarily be a Jersey swatch, but they could uh, get one of their, their neckties and take their a ties. Out of their necktie and put that on the, the card. So I will tell you this, the reason why non-NHL players are not included in NHL sets is because it has to do with league rules and more so the players' union rules. That's why you don't have draft picks in sets of hockey cards anymore, because 
the Players Association wants their cards to just feature their players, not referees, not coaches, not draft picks, not the best five players from Sweden who are not yet in the NHL, et cetera, et cetera. Like all those other things they would do in the 90s to try to like either stuff sets with pre-rookie cards or unique content in the case of referees and coaches. But don't you have a, a game-used tie card of somebody, Tim, like of uh, Doc Emmerich? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, he's not a coach, but still. I think you're right. I think it is a game-used tie. I think there's a... I want to say there's like a, a John Forslund card, um, the announcer, John Forslund. I think there's mm-hmm. a card that has a, be- a piece of worn fabric from him somewhere. Always wanted to find it, but it was always expensive as hell, too. I have his Voices of the Game auto. I think it might have been in the same set as that. From that, uh, the one Crown Royal set. Panini Crown Royale. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so the last current inductee, Pierre Lacroix, who sadly died in 2020 from COVID-19 complications. So he's Mm -hmm. getting in to the Hall of Fame after his death. He was the... Yes, I can never pronounce that word. Can you say it again? Posthumously. Thank you. He said he said that very well. He was president and general manager of the Nordiques Avalanche franchise from 1994 to 2006, and the Avalanche won the Stanley Cup in '96 and 2001. So I mean, he came in after that whole Eric Lindros mess, where the Nordiques drafted Lindros and. He didn't want to play for them, so then they ended up trading him to the Flyers. But he still brought in players that helped the team win the Stanley Cup, most notably Patrick Waugh. He's also going in in the builders category. You have to look at, again, what he did and what he meant to that organization and kind of what he more or less gave back to the NHL as well with his experience and everything. And that's kind of why he's... Getting that acknowledgement, I guess, now. Look back at his body of work. He was one of those guys where he would just look at his team and be like, you know what? If we're going to win, I got to make trades. I got to do something. I mean, he would trade first-round picks. He would trade, like, a whole gaggle of players for a couple guys just to try to tweak his team and make things right. I mean, look. He took chances. Yeah, he's the one that wrapped up was like four or five players plus a pick just to get Ray Bork, you know, and then he picked up Rob Blake. How about that, man? Yeah. He picked up Rob Blake from the Kings for same thing, like four or five players and a draft pick. Then they win their second Stanley cup. So it's like he had a knack for going for it, I guess. And not a lot of teams are willing to do that. And they're not willing to throw Caution to the wind and just be like, you know what? We need to win now. And I think that's old a lot of times. Yeah, and it does. And you don't see a lot of that. So many GMs are too concerned about trying to save their jobs than actually do their jobs, which is to win the Stanley Cup. So focused on the future, they're not thinking about the present. Mm. And just him being with the organization as long as he was. Not many people have a tenure like that. The fact that he was with the team prior to relocation, the fact that he stayed with the team, and even when he wasn't GM, he was the president of the team for five, six years after that fact, before he finally you know, stepped down and, and retired. He was pivotal in building, not just in the area for the Avalanche, but 
helping other youth sports teams around the Denver area. He's one of the big reasons why there's a whole bunch of arenas that were built around Denver for various sports. So, I mean, he's got a pretty long, pretty long legacy of his contributions to the game of hockey, not just being GM or president or anything of the, of the team. He's got a lot more going on. And I think that's what the hall needs to be. Remember, it's not the NHL hall of fame. It's the hockey hall of fame. Right. So contributions to the game mean a lot. It's not just being able to play. It's, it's what you can bring to the table, but don't get me wrong. He does have a rookie card. You can't deny that Pierre Lacroix did have a rookie card. It is in a major release from 81-82. He's got an Opeachy card. He should have had a card a couple years before that. I think his first year was like 79, but he didn't. His first card was in What's the value of it? You can probably get one right now for a buck, maybe. Hold on. $2.62. That's that's the the rock bottom price for that. That's his 81-82. He also had an 82-83. You could have that for about 65 cents. And he has an 83-84 Topps sticker when he was on the Whalers. The two years that Topps didn't make hockey cards. They did stickers. Yeah, they did stickers, which is just funny. Like, well, hockey cards suck. We're not going to make hockey cards. I know, let's make hockey stickers, right? Kids love that. I think they sometimes like stickers a little better, like littler kids, especially with the album and stuff. And the packs are cheaper. You can slap them on your Trapper Keeper when you're going to school. I used to do that. Yeah. If you're not a card kid or a sticker kid, but you must have every Pierre Lacroix ever made, you can also go after the 83 Suhey Renaissance keychain card because he has one of those too. Wow. He shares yeah. that with, with Risto Siltanen, who's on the yeah. reverse side. We promised we were going to talk about snubs. So I'm going to get my big snub out of the way real quick. I'm going to address the elephant in the room, or I should say the coyote in the room or the Blackhawk, or whatever you want to say, because one of my all-time favorite players, Jeremy Roenick, still not in the Hall of Fame. So I think now that Turgeon's in the Hall, Roenick is the guy with the most points who's not in the Hall. Not 100% sure about that fact, but either way, I'm going to just throw these stats out at you, and then you can think about it. In 1,363 games, 513 goals, 703 assists, 1,216 points. And in in the playoffs, he had 122 points in 154 games. Now, like I said, guy gets 400 goals or 600 assists or 1,000 points. It needs to be a conversation. Should this guy be in the Hall of Fame? You got to have that conversation. Once they hit 500 goals or 700 assists or 1,200 points, it should be a foregone conclusion. So the fact that Ronick is not in the Hall of Fame is because he's one of those guys who's being blacklisted because he was never afraid as a player to speak his mind. He would, I wouldn't say talk trash because it wasn't, wouldn't talk trash, but he would butt heads with not so much Mike Keenan, a little bit with Mike Keenan. He was afraid of Mike Keenan originally, but then as he became a better player, he stood up to Keenan he would butt heads with Daryl Sutter. I mean, they were uh, when Daryl Sutter became the head coach. I mean, he once said, you know, playing for Daryl Sutter is like playing with a bungee cord attached to your back. You get out to the offensive zone and then you get pulled back into the defensive zone, right? And 
Sutter is like, well, you got to play defense also, you know, and Roenick was scoring 50 goals and getting over 100 points. And then there was the whole contract negotiation problem when Roenick became a restricted free agent and he wanted a contract. I want to say he wanted about $3 million a year, which is what he would have been worth easily. Eric Lindros was making that at the time. And Lindros became one of the most dominant players in the 90s. I'm, I'm not dissing him at all. But Roenick should have been one of the top paid players. And he wasn't. And so he wanted more money. The Blackhawks said no. He refused to sign the contract. They traded him to the Phoenix Coyotes for Alexei Zamnoff and some other stuff. I think another player, maybe a pick. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. Ronick then spent the best years of his career with the, well, actually with the Blackhawks, statistically speaking. But then, you know, he went on with a long career with the Coyotes, with the Flyers, one season with the Kings, which was terrible, and then with the Sharks. I mean, that's the thing. Like, he was willing to stand up for himself. And sometimes he said stuff that was controversial. If this boils down to the most recent thing when he got suspended and basically kicked off of NBC for making some stupid comments, first of all, it wasn't even on the air. Second of all, it was on a different show, on a podcast, and as we know, no one listens to podcasts. So it's not like anybody heard it. It only happened to be one of the most popular hockey podcasts, but still, you know. Yeah, that's besides uh, the point. It is a popularity contest, and Mm -hmm. if he has managed to significantly cheese off the people that run the show and yet he's got a a huge following regardless of of his own fan base regardless of what he's done in his lifetime he might as well just you know just about be like the rush of the hockey hall of fame or took you know forever for for rush to get into the the rock and roll hall of fame and they didn't even want to be there for the most part and the guy that owned the Hall of Fame didn't didn't want them. But eventually the fans were ready to burn the whole damn building down if they didn't let them in. So finally they relented. Problem well, is I- we don't know what goes into this. You know, you have 18, 18 members picking secretly on the secret ballot and nobody knows. And it's the Illuminati pick. And we don't know what's going on when it comes to any of that. So, yeah, if there's people on there that are the hockey purists that don't like people talking and don't like personalities, then, yeah, Roenick may never get in. And it goes back to kind of what we were talking about with Tom Barrasso. If you look at full body of work and all stats across the board, yeah, great. But if you're looking at the guy after he left his peak, I mean, the end of Roenick's career. I mean, once he got to the Flyers, that was kind of the beginning of the end. Because he played for the Flyers, and then it was the Kings, the Coyotes, the Sharks. Right, and right. Did he yeah. ever have more than 30, 35 points? No. I don't think he did after that. He and was so, a personality yeah. at that point. Yeah, so you look at the last five, six years of his career, you're like, eh. yeah, he was there. But you can't take away the body of work prior to that and everything you talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, He put up 100 points for like three straight years. He got 50 goals twice in that span. So... The fans loved him, but it doesn't yeah. mean necessarily mean. And and I'm sure a lot of his teammates liked liked him, but not all. And he managed to cheese off a lot of his coaching staff. And well, he gives a good quote here and there for sure. Like behind the scenes, you know, the the people that were reporting on him might have thought he was just Jack. Again, we don't know how this is right. voted upon. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing that kills me. There's no transparency to it. So. We can speculate all we want, and we don't really know what goes into it, but 
I think it does boil down to that whole personality thing. If you clash with too many of your quote unquote superiors in the business, you're going to raise an eyebrow when it comes down to, okay, now it's time for us to do you a favor. Yeah, no thanks. Now, I will say this though Doug Wilson, who was inducted recently, he retired in 93. He should have been in a Hall of Fame in 96, but he was another one who clashed with the people above him, but for different reasons. Wilson was a player rep for uh, the Players Association, and then I think he was the president or whatever. Like He was like one of the top guys, so he would have been one of the people doing negotiating whenever there was like labor issues and stuff. So, you know, people who work for unions usually are not liked by bosses, I think. I'm pretty sure that's how it is, right? You know, and then when he went to the Sharks, he basically handcuffed the Blackhawks and said, look, I will only take a trade to the Sharks. He was an asset. They had to get rid of him. He said, I'm not going to play for Mike Keenan anymore. But the only team I'll waive my no trade clause for is the Sharks, right? So they basically had to give away this all-star defenseman to the Sharks, for a second round pick. So you do stuff like that, you're going to piss off the people above you. The thing is, is that eventually all those people die or retire. And now you look at the Hall of Fame. I brought up Lanny McDonald earlier. Lanny was a contemporary of Doug Wilson. They were players against each other. He's not going to be pissed at Doug Wilson that he was a union rep. And he's going to think, man, this is the guy that used to be on the Blackhawks that used to give me a hard time when I would go to try and score goals, right? There's that respect. It took Wilson like almost 30 years to get into the Hall of Fame since he retired. Maybe another 10, 15 years, Ronick will get in because you might have his contemporaries on the panel. Ronick has way better stats than Wilson, though, too. But then again, one's a defenseman, one's a forward. So obviously you're going to see a difference. But still, yeah, you're right. He might sit for quite a while until... Recent memory is forgotten by the members of the voting committee. I think each of you have one that you want to talk about. So go for it. Why don't you go first? Uh, I want to hear who you pick first. Well, I I don't think it's going to be any surprise to anybody here on the panel or anybody listening at home. It's clear that the, the, the biggest snub that continues to happen for far too long is the fact that this the the Hockey Hall of Fame will just not recognize Dale Earnhardt. It's a fantastic driver in NASCAR. He was so damn good that he he's just supersedes other sports. He should be enshrined in the Hockey Hall of Fame just because he's Dale. Yeah, but only Joey Logano has a hockey card. Right. Joey Logano has a hockey card, but Dale yeah. Earnhardt does not. Yeah. So try again. <laughs> Qualification. I mean, unless you oh, there has to there has to be a card. I say unless unless it's the builders yeah. category, then no. Right. Hmm. No, he tears right. it all down. Raise hail, praise Dale. So who uh, are you really picking? Uh, look, I mean, I could sit there and talk about Brindamore all day long. It's Rod Brindamore, Rod the Bod Brindamore. No, Skyler, his son. Yes, oh, of course, Rod the Bod. I'm just clarifying uh, <laughs> for our listeners. Every year, they, 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 it's brought up the fact that he doesn't doesn't get in, and uh, I, you know, the, so many people will be like, "Oh, it's just, his stats just weren't quite good enough." You know, it's like, okay, look, he's got the hardware, he's he's got the pedigree. Uh, he w- was a staple of the game. 
he made fitness a regular thing. Like I'm pretty sure people were still smoking on the benches when he started in the league. At the end of the day, he didn't really ever dream about getting into the hockey hall of fame. And so it's not that, you know, not that big of a deal to him. And I think to a lot of his fans, you know, yeah, as much as, as we would like to see him get in, I'm more than fine respecting his wishes. He lifted the cup. That's what he cared about. That's why he started playing. It's not about accolades, even though he's a, a, has always been a leader. uh, He has given more thought to hockey being a team sport and what that means to the people around him than it is for getting any sort of, of, of accolades. He's always shied away from that. He's, he's never really wanted anything more than to be with his guys uh, celebrating at the most. That's it. He shies away from, you know, having anybody shower praise on him. Uh, I'm just looking at his stats right here. So uh, in 1,484 regular season games, Brenda Moore had 452 goals and 732 assists for 11 11- 84 in points so again going by my my benchmark or whatever you want to call it your mendoza line my mendoza line right more than 400 goals it should be a conversation 400 goals conversation 700 goals eh, should really be in over you know 1100 points yeah should probably really be you know what i mean so i guess that's the thing though is that like but it's 11 over 1100 points and over 1400 games I mean, he was encroaching upon 1,500 games played. He's mm-hmm. got more games played than most of anybody else that's out there that's eligible. Right. I, mean, Pat, Pat, I think Pat would be great behind him. begged him to, to, to retire when he did because he was clearly out of gas by, by that last season. Yeah. And yet he played 80 games in that last season, 80 out of 82. Mm-hmm. So, I'm looking- What individual hardware does he have? Is that what's keeping him out? Two Selkie trophies in 05, 06, 06, 07, and then he's got an Adams in 2021, but that would be in the builders category if we were to go in as a coach. So he did win best defensive player, and this was a good 15 years into his career. I mean, he started 88-89 playoffs. Believe it or not, I remember him in the 88-89 playoffs. So the Blackhawks called up Jeremy Roenick, for the 89 playoffs and the blues called up Rod Brindamore for the 89 playoffs. And they played against each other in the second round. Um, and I remember that, you were, know, cause those two were drafted, uh, right, right behind each other, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, they were, yeah, that was a, that was a hell of a draft year. That 88 that draft really 89, 90 was his first season. Right. And so he's winning the Selkie trophy in 2006. So, I mean, he's 16 years into his career. I mean, a lot of times when players win trophies, it's in the first 10 years of their career. And when they're winning stuff in the latter half of their career, that's really impressive. Looking at his statistics, looking at his accolades, Selkie trophies, he did win the cup. So that checks that box. He did take fitness to another level because, I mean, I remember like in the 80s, you still had players who smoked. I remember in a Blackhawks guide and record book one year, it just mentioned like a little tidbit about Dennis Savard where it's just like the little biographical bits. It was like 
proudly kicked the habit of smoking last year, right? Like, <laughs> and this was like in the 80s, but I imagine, you know, having a cigarette after the game or something. It is just like nuts that players would do that. And then Brindamore, like, reversed. Not only did he not do that, but he was really into bodybuilding. And I mean, I remember reading an article about him in a bodybuilding magazine. I had a friend who would buy like muscle and fitness and all that stuff. He'd be like, oh, hey, this guy's a hockey guy. You should read this article. I'm like, oh yeah, Red Brindamore. Yeah, he's he's a bodybuilder. So you look at like players now, like when ESPN does like the body issue and you see like, I remember like Brent Burns and like Joe Thornton and they're just like super cut and like super jacked and they look like MMA fighters. You didn't really have that. In the 80s, definitely not in the 70s. I mean, guys would go back to the bench, take a swig of beer, and then go out two minutes later. You know, now you look at guys and they all look like they could be MMA fighters or wrestlers or something. You know what I mean? They're just they're just so built. Brindamore really was one of the one of the two guys, him and Gary Roberts, who was yeah. really into the whole fitness thing. I mean, those two guys elevated hockey fitness to like that where it is now. I think that the, the term gym rat, if you looked it up in, in a, a hockey dictionary, it would definitely have one of those two, one of those two pictures right there next to that, for sure. As far as getting back on track there, the worst thing in the world would be one year when they only, the, the league or the, the Hockey Hall of Fame only takes uh, four players in and they still snub Rod Brindamore. At that point, then I think somebody might get pissed about it, but they're never going to do it. And after a while, you just got to say, eh, okay, that's just the way it's going to be. He's just somehow below their Mendoza line. Well, as we've seen with some of these inductees, though, never say never, right? Mike Vernon and Tom Barrasso waited a long time. And again, maybe when the contemporary of Jeremy Roenick and Rod Brindamore is one of the people calling the shots in the Hall of Fame selection committee, they're like, oh, yeah, Rod Brindamore, he was a beast to play against. They have that extra experience and are not just looking at the numbers, but but everything else. So who knows? I, I, I don't know. It's just it's, it's a running gag, but we can move on. Who else, who do you got, Tim? Well, my guy is the same guy that I think almost everybody in the hockey world is pretty cheesed off about. And that's Alex Mogilny. There is zero reason why he's not in the hall. And this is one of the big things why I wish there was transparency as to why we're picking who we pick and why we don't pick others. Now, if you look statistically, yeah, are there guys that have better stats than he does? Absolutely. He's under 1,000 games, but he's well over the 400 goal mark. He's over 500 assists. He's got over 1,000 points. He's got a cup. He's got world championships. He's got an Olympic gold medal. So right there, he's got hardware. So it's kind of hard to say, well, this guy doesn't play for championship teams, can't contribute, any of that kind of stuff. You can't say that. And anybody that grew up during the time frame that he played, you can't tell me he was not an elite player because he absolutely was an elite player. That dude's wrist shot was ridiculous. Ridiculous. It made no sense how he was able to shoot like he was. But the thing that kills me the most, again, I go back to this whole thing of it's contribution to the game 
of hockey. How can you take Mogilny's story and discount that and not put him in simply for what he did for the game for not just Russian players, but European players in general? I mean, he completely changed what outlook players from Europe had in potentially coming over to the NHL. I mean, he's the very first player to defect from the Soviet Union to the NHL. Literally. That alone should get him at least an honorary induction. Yeah, if you're not going to take him as a player, take him as a builder. Yeah. Because he paved the way for this. He left the national team. The world championship ended. The 89 world championship ended. This was like a day off from practice because like the Russian players, you know, Russian Russian machine never breaks or whatever the phrase is. Mm. They they were they were always practicing, they were always, you know, working. They had like a day off or something, and he went shopping at the mall. They had a car waiting outside for him and whisked him away in this car to get him out of the country while they were being chased by KGB agents to He's bring him back. He literally risked his life. Yeah, he risked not only his life, but his family's life. Because we know what happens. So after he left, that kind of opened opened the floodgates. A year later, you had Fedorov show up to the Red Wings. You had Pavel Bure come over. So, I mean, we're talking players of that generation in that era that were... Both of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. So would they have been in the Hall of Fame if there wasn't somebody to trailblaze to get them here. And oh, by the way, he was pretty darn good at the game too. Just look at his stats and look at all of the things that all of his teammates and other players talk about him and say not only was he a great player, but he was a great teammate and a really good person because he cared about his teammates. I mean, I saw what Corey Hirsch actually posted on his social media after McGilley didn't go in. And, you know, he was one of his best friends. And as a lot of goaltenders, they get in their own heads and have all sorts of things going on. One of Corey Hirsch's big supporters when he was having his struggles was Alex Mogilny, and he helped him through a lot of you know, what he struggled with. Mm. So he's a great person. And so it's like to see year after year if he's eligible for such a talented guy to just get ignored – and the fact that he had that big of an impact on the landscape for Russian players and even a lot of European players that said, well, look, there's all these opportunities for us to go you know, and play in the NHL, and that's our dream is, is to have a chance and a shot at a Stanley Cup. And that's a completely valid argument. It's crazy that it's like they can't see the forest through the trees. It's like, okay, here's all these great guys. What about this guy? There's so much more of an impact that he has to the game of hockey other than just stats. And oh, by the way, I think he has the stats because there's plenty of guys that are below him. And he's got a cup. And he's got world championships. He won a world championship. He was still a teenager, for God's sake. And then he wins a cup in 2000 with the Devils. So, like, 1988, when he was a teenager, 2000 gets a cup. So, 
he kind of bookends it, right? So I don't know. I just don't see. I think with Pierre Turgeon going in this year, but granted, like I already said, he has a great career. I don't know. He was the first Russian captain of any any hockey team in the NHL. He wore the C as a Russian player. And it makes me start to think, is that what this is? There's been so much tension and everything over giving any credit or even talking about or allowing them to participate in everything else and sanctions against them and this whole Ukraine war and all of this. Is this a political thing rather than anything else? Because he's Russian, is this the issue? That's what makes me wonder. And that's why I want to see transparency. Because there's no reason why this guy shouldn't be in there. No reason. That's my spiel on Mogilny. No arguments out of me. Two things I want to point out, or a couple things. Uh, It's never just two things with me. But, like, with Mogilny, he defects, and then a year later, Fedorov defects. And they were teammates together for the Red Army team. In fact, their line was, how's this for a forward line? You had Mogilny, you had Fedorov. And he had Bure. Those are the guys that they were grooming to like become like their next Russian five. I forgot who their two D men would have been. Talk but... about a red line. Yeah, that's like the most scariest, amazing line you could put together at the time. I mean, think about how like you had the KLM line of Krutov, Larianov, and Makarov, and, and how right. they would just dominate in international play in like the eighties, right? The KLM line. Whenever the NHLers of like Gretzky and those guys would play the Russians, they'd have to put up with the KLM line. And they were a tough line to play. Now imagine if the Iron Curtain didn't fall and they were still doing NHL versus Russia tournaments in like the 90s. And it's like, okay, you know, here's Lemieux and Gretzky and Iserman. And oh, on the other team, there's Bure, McGilney, and Fedorov. I'm not saying that they'd be better than them. I'm just saying it was hard to contain one of those guys. Could you imagine having to face off three against three of them? That would be pretty damn intense. It'd be like chasing three cats around the house and trying to corral them. You just wouldn't be able to do it. And Jim, you, did you get that third cat yet? Uh, no, we're, we're still at two. Although a friend of mine, uh, he's got two young kids. And for some damn reason, he's now, he, he's got three kittens. So I think he must just exist purely with chaos. But anyways, so McGillney defects, Fedorov defects a year later. The other thing, too, is you think about it now. Yes, people who knew hockey in the 70s and 80s, of course, they remembered Vladislav Tretiak, the great Russian goaltender. I mean, he's still alive. But, I mean, they, they remembered him from all those international competitions. Let me ask you this. Who is really the first impressive Russian to play in the NHL? And it was Alex McGillney. Because that year, you had the Russian Five basically came over. And Sergei Makarov did win Rookie of the Year at age 29. And that's because he had the most points of any rookie. So he had more points than Rod Brindamore and Jeremy Roenick and Mike Madano, who were also rookies that year, right? It was, nope, Sergei Makarov wins the Rookie of the Year award, right? But you had, you know, Fatisov and Larianov, and then you had... uh, Kasatanov, and then you had um, Makarov and, and Krutov, right? So you had your Russian five guys, right? They were great players, but they were winding down their careers. 
But then there was Alexander McGilney, who was like this young Russian kid, and whereas the other players got permission to leave Russia and play in the NHL, and Russia was taking a portion of their salary. That was part of the deal. McGilney was there because he defected, and he was really the first exciting Russian player for North American audiences, at least as an NHL player. Well, I remember watching him play and thinking this guy was like head and shoulders above most of the guys in the NHL. And he was from a skill standpoint. He would put up the numbers, but anytime they'd stick a microphone in front of his face, though, it was pretty rough. I think back when Malkin was a rookie and he could barely speak English and he would say all this crazy stuff and nobody knew what he was talking about. It was kind of the same for Mogilny because he didn't, it was it was a rough language barrier, so the press hated him. They couldn't stand it because he wouldn't stand up there and say, "Oh, you know, pucks in deep. We got to get it in the corner. We got to, you know, got to got to roll four lines." No, he wouldn't say all that stuff. He would speak his mind, but in Russian, and he would say what he knew to say, and they didn't like that. That was a time when you just gave mindless answers when the press asked you questions. But he never did that. The problem is you couldn't really hold that against him because he was putting up the numbers. And when they put him with Pat LaFontaine, because they traded Turgeon to the Islanders for LaFontaine, and LaFontaine came to the Sabres. And when McGilney and him were together, forget it. It was stupid. The two of them together was ridiculous. So it just makes me think that there's something more to this than just him not having a thousand games or, or him not having, you know, 1300 points or there's gotta be something else because there, his there contribution has... to the game of hockey is undeniable. So I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. And there've been other Russian players who've gone into the hall of fame. That's why I said yeah, Fedorov the... and Burry are both in there. Yeah. They have the mm-hmm. numbers to back it up, but they would have never been here if it wasn't for Mogilny. So I don't know. It's like, how do you take everybody behind when you don't take the guy that knocked the door down? The mystery wrapped inside an enigma. I just don't get it. So the moral of this story is I really wish there was more transparency to this, this whole thing. That's it. That's all I have to say about that. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. And until next time, collect what you like. For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at PuckJunk.